0: This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And this is indeed The Deep Dive, and I am Brooke Spector. And today we're going to talk about uh, a topic of enormous interest and I hope concern on the part of audiences uh, everywhere because we, we are living in the Anthropocene uh, which I think Dr. Engelbrecht can probably explain better than I can. But our guest today is Dr. Francois Engelbrecht, professor of climatology at the Global Change Institute of the University of the Witwatersrand, And uh, we're, obviously, we're going to talk a bit about climate and weather and COP27 and everything in between. Mark Twain, the American author, used to say, Everybody talks about the weather, but nobody ever does anything about it. (laughs) That probably holds doubly true for climate. We all talk about climate, but unfortunately, it seems that most people don't do much about it. Um, Now, I can remember, I'm old enough to remember when Earth Day began, when we gathered on university uh, lawns and Places of parks and cities, and we we celebrated Mother Earth, and we and, and we worshipped Gaia, and we we accepted the idea that the the pale blue marble really was our only hope, and we had to do something about it. But that was back in the gosh, that was back in the early nineteen seventies, and there were a lot of people who poo pooed all that, and they said, no, climate's not. It, climate's fine. I mean, look, we had a winter where there were blizzards and the temperature dropped below zero every day for a month. Why in the world are we worrying about climate? Dr. Francois Engelbrecht, tell me why we should worry about climate and why, more importantly, everybody listening should worry about climate. Good morning, Brooks. And um, isn't what you've just
1: said so true? We are talking- talk a lot about climate change nowadays, but there's still very much, very little climate change happening. Um, but there's still very little climate change action being taken, unfortunately. But to, to answer your question, um, humans have gradually been warming planet Earth. It started back with the industrial revolution in the early 1800s. Effectively, we've been pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. That happens, of course, when we burn coal and oil and gas. Carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas, so it has the ability to warm the atmosphere. And the net result as we have this discussion today is that we have thus far warmed the average planet, the average temperature of the planet at the surface with about 1.2 degrees Celsius. So that's the current level of global warming. Now, climate change science tells us that there are dangerous thresholds in terms of future global warming that we are now on the verge of exceeding. The first of these thresholds is the so-called 1.5 degree degrees Celsius temperature threshold, and the second is the two degrees Celsius level of global warming. Now because of this lack of action in terms of climate change mitigation, we may very well exceed the 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold permanently as early as the 2030. And if this current lack of strong action persists, we will exceed the two degrees Celsius threshold somewhere in the 2040s. Now, that means that several aspects of climate change will become more dangerous, and there are aspects of climate change that will also become irreversible. Now, perhaps we can expand today in more detail in terms of what exactly do we mean with dangerous climate change and irreversible climate change. But But for now, I think, so irreversible climate change refers first and foremost to 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 the rise in sea level that can already be detected across the world. Sea levels are rising across the planet because of the fact that in a warmer world, the water is of course expanding, but also because of the world's glaciers melting away at the ever faster rate. And that includes the glaciers of the Greenland ice sheet and also of West Antarctica. The risk here is that somewhere between 1.5 and two degrees Celsius of global warming, there's a threshold where it is likely that the melting of the Greenland ice sheet will become irreversible. And that means that we will commit future generations to about six six meters of sea level rise just from the Greenland ice sheet alone. During this century, under such a scenario, the sea level rise may be in the order of a meter by the end of the century. This means that hundreds of millions of people will be displaced from where they are currently living along the world's coastal areas, Um, as a consequence of the increasing sea levels during the course of the century. Science is less clear about the risks that exist in terms of the Antarctic ice sheet, but there is an indication that the threshold at which the West Antarctic ice sheet will become unstable may also be somewhere between 1.5 and two degrees Celsius of global warming. That's another six meters of sea level rise. So our generation, through our lack of action in terms of climate change mitigation, will literally make planet Earth smaller for future generations to live on. Effectively, we are stealing living space from future generations. And sea level rise is, of course, irreversible in the lifetimes of several generations of humans. It's not It's not possible to get that water back into the ice sheets once it has melted. So that's the first example of irreversible
0: climate change. Let me just ask you a question after that. As I understand paleontology and uh, previous climate circumstances, the earth has been through a series of freezing and melting with temperature changes, obviously, as a result of that. And at one point, lots of ice, uh, perhaps most of the landmass of the planet was covered by ice sheets. So it's not irreversible as much as it's not irreversible because of human interaction. Is that a fair thing to say? I think the correct statement to make is that it is irreversible
1: within the context of the lifetimes of several generations of humans. Okay. In that context, it is irreversible. The Earth naturally goes, of course, through these cycles of ice ages and warmer phases in between. Now, 21,000 years ago, the Earth was in the middle of an ice age. It's known as the last glacial maximum. And on the average, sea levels were a staggering 125 meters lower than they are today because of so much more water being taken up in the ice sheets of the Northern Hemisphere and and also in Antarctica. But we should remember that this natural cycle through which Earth goes is driven by changes in the orbit, orbital characteristics of Earth around the Sun, including the tilt of the Earth's axis and the shape of the orbit around the Sun. On the average, there's about forty thousand years between one ice age and the next ice age. So we should mm. we should realize that these are very slowly and gradual gradually occurring changes at geological timescales. What we are doing right now is something completely novel for the Earth system. So we as humans have now risen the global temperature with a staggering one point two degrees Celsius in less than 200 years. That rate of change cannot be explained by any natural process or cycle that we know of. But it's very well explained, of course, by the increase in greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And of course, this increase in the, in return can be directly linked back to our reliance on fossil fuels as our main source of energy.
0: I'm going to take a break right here. We have to do a commercial message because it's these are important things. They're important messages. We have to give them our, to our audience. And we will be back after that. We're speaking with Dr. Francois Engelbrecht, professor of climatology of the Global Change Institute of the University of the Bitwatersrand. But I'm going to, leave, I'm going to park you with a question that I want you to think about and then be able to respond after our break. This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And this is the Deep Dive, and this is Brooke Spector, and we're speaking with Dr. François Engelbrecht, professor of climatology of the Global Change Institute right here in Johannesburg at the University of the Witwatersrand, and I parked a question with him before the station break about explaining the difference between weather and climate. And I did that for, for a reason, because so often people like to point to weather and say, you see, Climate's not changing. we had a winter like nobody's business last winter. Uh, we have a cold summer um, what's your complaint well, very simply put
1: climate is the long term average of weather, usually averaged over a thirty year period following the standards of the world meteorological organization so here we many of we live in Johannesburg, or in the Heifelt of South Africa, we are of course all familiar with a range of different weather patterns, for example, the thunderstorms that bring our rainfall in summer, periods of prolonged rainfall often caused by large cloud bands that reach us all the way from tropical Africa. And then, of course, our winters are typically these long sunny periods without any clouds big inversion layers both typically during winter, and we have a lot of air pollution close to the surface. So I think we know, we all have a very good understanding of what weather is and that it varies, of course, strongly across seasons, and as we all know, sometimes from one day to the next. Climate is simply the average characteristics of these weather patterns. So we would typically say the climatological temperature of Johannesburg in January is substantially higher, of course, than the July temperature. And the January rainfall is typically well above 100 millimeters, but in July, it's typically less than 10 millimeters. So climate is simply the average characteristics of weather. Weather changes all the time. The climate is not supposed to change unless we are changing something in terms of the energy budget of the planet. Now, we've already discussed that this can happen naturally, for example, as the Earth's axis across a period of several tens of thousands of years but when the average characteristics of climate changes over a period of just a 100 years or maybe 200 years we should be really concerned what is causing in this case this additional amount of energy that is obviously from some source accumulating in the atmosphere And as we've now already discussed, today the the cause of this is very well known. The cause of global warming is very well known. It's because greenhouse gases have substantially been accumulating in the atmosphere
0: since the Industrial Revolution. Let me stop you for just a second. And I mean, the term green, we throw the term greenhouse gas around a lot. Uh, I'm not entirely sure everybody understands what that means. And as I understand, now correct me, as I understand it, Um, Because of the molecular structure of a a CO2 molecule, carbon dioxide, it allows sunlight energy to enter the Earth's atmosphere, but it acts as a kind of a mirror preventing it from leaving or uh, baking away. And the end result is you get a positive cycle of more and more uh, energy trapped within the atmosphere. atmosphere of the earth and therefore leading to the kinds of problems that we've just been talking about is that is that close to the truth that's very
1: well explained brooks and i can maybe just add that of course every day planet earth receives a great deal of energy moving through the atmosphere but originating of course from the sun our main source of energy that any that energy moves through the atmosphere it's of course, the bulk of that energy is in, is in the so-called short wave spectrum of the electromagnetic radiation spectrum. And it reaches the planet of the Earth where much of it gets absorbed, of course, by the ocean. Mm. Now, Earth also then re-radiates that energy back into space. But planet Earth is, of course, much cooler than the sun. So the radiation wavelength is much longer most of that radiation that Earth emits back to space is in the infrared part of the electromagnetic um, wave radiation spectrum. And it's that long wave radiation that gets absorbed by certain types of gases. Two really important ones are carbon dioxide and methane. Another really important greenhouse gas is water vapor. So the more the abundance of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, the more of this infrared radiation can be absorbed in the atmosphere. And that is what's warming the atmosphere. So if there's a natural balance, the natural balance that existed before the Industrial Revolution, that resulted that I mean, that natural balance between the incoming shortwave radiation and the outgoing infrared or longwave radiation, resulted in the planet having an average temperature of about just about 14 degrees Celsius. That is now averaged across the entire planet. And that average temperature has been rising since we've started pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And that is because the balance is no longer perfectly in place because of the fact that more and more of the infrared energy that's supposed to escape into space is kept in the atmosphere by the increasing concentrations of greenhouse gases.
0: Now I have read um that in the oh goodness uh what 200 million 250 million years ago the amount of carbon dioxide and water vapor in the atmosphere was higher than it is now and uh as a result that contributed to a a, a period of global warming uh but then that dissipated because of changes in the mechanisms of absorbing uh, carbon and carbon dioxide, uh, that is to say plants and flowering plants. And this brings into the equation then the question of forests and deforestation and the kind of man-made destruction that we uh, produce by cutting down the Amazon or the forest in Kalimantan or central Congo, uh, things like that. Uh, Is is that also something that a climatologist has to take into account? There are, of course, absolutely
1: fascinating changes that happened on planet Earth over periods of millions of years at geological timescales. So there were periods, for example, when it is thought that the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was about a 1,000. Parts per million. Now, the what we refer today to as the natural or the pre-industrial level is about uh, 280 parts per million. Mm-hmm. We've already increased this this concentration to about the latest the latest the latest numbers in is about 415 parts per million. So we've almost doubled um, in the last 200 years or thereabouts. We are very close to doubling. At the current rate of emissions we will we will have doubled the natural concentration somewhere in the two thousand and forties late two thousand and forties or two thousand and fifties at best so yes, indeed we are heading towards doubling the pre industrial concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere um during times in the geological past when carbon dioxide concentrations were so exceptionally high because of natural processes, for example, really increased volcanic activity that pumped vast concentrations of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, it's estimated that the planet's temperature was about 8 degrees Celsius higher than the pre-industrial level. So there were really times in the very distant past when Earth was exceptionally warm in response to these very high levels of carbon dioxide. Um, there were also periods in time when, during periods of glacial maximum, when it is estimated that the, the, the planet's temperature may have been two to five degrees Celsius cooler than the pre-industrial era, because greenhouse gas concentrations, specifically carbon dioxide concentrations, were lower. Mm. And one reason for that was, of course, the reduced vegetation cover during periods of last glacial maximum so to answer your question brooks yes deforestation the world's forests um, also the savannahs in africa the southern oceans natural carbon cycle all of this are really important aspects when we think about how climate change may unfold over the next several decades It's important for us to protect the world's rainforests first and foremost across South America, tropical Africa, Indonesia. And that's important because, as I think most of the listeners will know, the world's rainforests store vast quantities of carbon dioxide. So stopping deforestation and trying to restore forests where that is a meaningful thing to do will help us in what remains of our chart. For our quest to keep global warming to below 1.5 degrees Celsius.
0: Let me just take a break here, but I'm going to uh, toss another question to you and let you cogitate on that. And uh, when we come back, maybe you can provide me inso- in- insights into the answer to, to, to my next burning question. Um, and that, of course, is the connection between interest groups and policies. And that may sound vague, but it really isn't. I mean, uh, mining coal and then using it to burn it uh, to make power through a generator uh, brings in a whole range of interest groups, including labor, people whose whose livelihoods depend on digging lumps of rock out of the ground. Uh, it, It also relates to people who operate these plants And it operates in opposition to people who say, no, we should all use solar cells on our roofs and gardens uh, rather than rely on the uh, coal-fired plants that uh, the mainstay here. While you think about how we bridge that gap between interests and policies, let's think about that and let's take another station break, another important message We're speaking with Dr. Francois Engelbrick, Professor of Climatology, the Global Change Institute of the University of the Water's and we'll be right back after this message. This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. Amazing how they do that. Sometimes. We don't have it for days, and then all of a sudden, I guess Lance area or Rand Central or something. Mm-hmm. And this is the deep dive, and I'm Brooke Spector, and we're back in conversation with Dr. Francois Engelbrecht, professor of climatology, Global Change Institute of the University of the Bithlatchers Run, and we're discussing uh, not only how individuals can can affect positively the amount of greenhouse gases that a uh, society produces. But the more difficult question, I think, which I posed to him just before our break was, how do you balance the interests of individuals and groups that are in conflict with these kinds of large changes, or perhaps are reluctant to make these changes? So, Professor, what do we do? Yeah, a complicated question, Brooks, maybe too tough for
1: climatologists to answer, but let me me make an attempt. It is True, that at this last conference of the parties, the big United Nations negotiations meeting, the fossil fuel companies of the world were extremely well presented. The statistic is that there were no less than 656 fossil fuel delegates that formally formed part of country delegations and trade teams at the conference. So, of course, they are an immensely strong lobbying group. And they've always been i think the solution exists in these very same fossil fuel companies realizing that there is in fact no longer a bright future firstly in coal and secondly also in oil and in gas the solution is to have them on board as part of the just transition process rather than to cast them out into the coal let me let me explain what I mean through the lens of the just transition in South Africa. We need our fossil fuel company, such as sassel with its immense wealth and Exaro and Esco, all to commit to this transition out of coal towards renewable forms of energy. Now, already the signs are there that these companies are busy to exactly execute on that plan. Exaro, for example, several years ago already made a commitment to be a net zero emissions company by 2050. That was an extremely brave statement to make because effectively they told the investors at the time, listen, uh, within 50 years, Exaro is going to be something completely different than it is today. So it needs to move completely out of its current business of mining and selling coal towards something completely new. And I know, for example, that they are, amongst other things, thinking about mining increasingly these rare minerals and metals that are needed by the renewable energy sector. That's one way out for them. Sasol is now on the record of having an extremely ambitious plan of being an entirely
0: green hydrogen company somewhere in the 2040s. The bugbear to me is the term green hydrogen, Now, I think I understand this because it involves the cycle of liberating hydrogen from its water molecule uh, by using uh, uh, recyclable energy or solar power to break up the molecules, package the hydrogen, and then allow it to be uh, distributed and then uh, unite with oxygen to produce water and liberate energy, I I think. But I'm going to turn that over to you to explain that. Because we we hear these phrases and a lot of people go, clean coal, green hydrogen, and uh, we just let it go at that. So what is green hydrogen precisely?
1: Brooks, I prefer not to answer you too technically on this aspect, since um, I'm not necessarily an expert in the relevant chemistry and physics. But the main message is that it is about producing hydrogen through processes that release very small amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And currently the production of green hydrogen is still considerably more expensive than producing Mm -hmm. hydrogen through conventional methods. So it's about the production process becoming of such a nature that it no longer emits further greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere. We should be indeed be very, very careful about using concepts such as clean coal or low emissions forms of energy. This is actually concerning language being used in the latest, well, in the final draft outcome, well, that, well in, in the final documented outcome of the 27th conference of the parties. Um, when we generate energy from gas instead of coal, for example, we release about half the emissions in the atmosphere for gas mm. compared to coal. Does that mean that gas is a low emissions form of energy? Um, climate scientists would say not, so climate scientists would say if we want any realistic chance of keeping the global temperature still below 1.5 degrees Celsius if not below 2 degrees Celsius, gas must also be completely phased out of the global energy system by 2050. Coal of course is the dirtiest pollutant of all, that should be phased out first, and soon after that should follow oil and gas. So in the end, renewable energy really refers to forms of energy that we can generate without carbon dioxide emissions entering into the atmosphere. Nuclear power is of course much better compared to oil, gas and coal when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions. It can also be regarded as a low emissions form of energy. But of course the nuclear waste is a long-term problem that humans will increasingly have to deal with across the world. And now with the war of now with the war in Ukraine, we've of course, seen once again, the immense external risks, I should say, associated with reliance on nuclear forms of energy. So really, the safest way forward for humanity and the most environmentally friendly way by far, is that we should increasingly rely on the truly renewable forms of energy to generate and fuel our world economy. Solar energy, wind energy, and water or hydroelectricity, those are the true clean and renewable forms of energy. Let me just add green hydrogen to that equation, I mean, green, green hydrogen is growing in prominence across the world, including in South Africa, and that is likely to be an important part of the future energy mix towards
0: achieving net zero emissions. One of the things that puzzles me about South Africa, and I've lived here off and on for uh, fifty years, so it, it's not unfamiliar territory to, to me. As I read it, uh, there's something like three hundred and fifty days a year of sunlight. So there are fifteen days of clouds and overcasts, and the rest of the time, the sun is, you know, is giving us skin cancer and all the rest of that. Why doesn't? And I may, this may be a bit outside your precise academic uh, area. But why doesn't the policy uh, advocacy move toward insisting that every new building in this country, in fact, every retrofitted building in this country and every renovation, begin to have some form of solar power generating uh, sources built into their, into their buildings? Uh, now, you're not going to replace the entire network. I understand that. Uh, and it's also dark in the night. And that's, that, that that brings up a whole different kind of question uh, about batteries. But it seems to me that we could cut down on the, the use of coal and things like that by simply having solar energy built infrastructure. Absolutely. And I think
1: this relates to a policy shift towards increasingly building buildings that can be referred to as so-called green buildings or adaptive buildings, Mm -hmm. um, including for um, houses across the country and including, of course, the commercial buildings in our bigger cities. So there's so much that can be done nowadays to design buildings that in fact do not need air conditioning. So very cleverly designed natural buildings can circumvent entirely that need for air conditioning that of course then becomes energy demanding. I mean there are many positive um, things to note as well. I see many of our latest uh, government rolled out uh, so-called hop houses are fitted out with solar panels, solar geysers at least. Mm -hmm. So I think the change is happening. I I think with rising electricity prices in South Africa, many households that were able to make the initial investment have already converted a large component of the household energy, mind, energy demand towards being solar generated. So the change is happening. But of course, as you've just indicated, if it becomes policy driven, it will be so much faster. So that brooks must be part of the South, Africa, South African just transition away from coal towards the renewable forms of energy. We also just need to take care of our communities who cannot easily afford these types of infrastructures at the household level, and they should be looked after and helped through subsidies, for example, to also make these changes.
0: One of the things that, that puzzles me, for example, is, is why uh, we don't have a system, low-cost loans or even grants, if, if people can't afford the loan, to provide for the conversion or the installation of... I mean, many of my neighbors have already gone fully or partially solar powered uh, for their energy. I'm still back in the dark ages. I'm, I'm relying on solar lights and uh, an inverter to keep us going when the power goes out. But it would be, I think, enormously useful if there was built into my ESCOM or Johannesburg Power Bill the offer of subsidizing or supporting my purchase of a solar system for some or all of my household needs.
1: And I don't quite
0: understand why that hasn't been something on the top of the policy horizon. Brooks, I can only agree. Um, I think you should certainly also have an interview with
1: one or more of our several excellent green energy experts rolling these technologies out across the country as we speak. Mm they will certainly endorse such a policy shift. But I can contribute to discussion this discussion this morning is that I think South Africa has a really big opportunity to make these shifts right now because of these international investments that we now increasingly are getting into the national economy through the United Nations driven climate change mitigation effort. I'm here referring specifically to that 8.5, A billion US dollar just just transition transaction we've been offered around the 26th conference of the parties a year ago, with more details of this deal emerging just a few weeks ago in Egypt. Now, the bulk of that funding, or at least a very large portion of it, are being directed towards the repurposing of free coal-fired power plants in Pumalanga. Now, that's really important, of course. But I do hope that the government will also deploy some of this funding to gain momentum in other aspects of this transition out of coal. And the changing bold environment in South Africa, as you've just mentioned, is another clear opportunity to reduce emissions, also by just reducing the demand for energy generation, as we've been discussing, through an increasing focus in South Africa on building green and adaptive buildings. The other critically important sector where we need to build up some momentum is in the transport sector, for example. Mention that, yeah. Let's also realize that our car manufacturing industry is currently, of course, entirely designed around the combustion engine. And a big part of our market is the European Union market that market is likely to be completely gone by the late 2030s because of the transition towards electric transport in the EU, which is one of the clearest policy changes already underway in the European Union and in the UK. So we will need to adjust our own production factories towards the growing electric car manufacturing industry internationally. And that means that our household production will also have to become directed towards electric cars. And for that, we are going to need an electric transport infrastructure across South Africa. This is a massive change. I cannot see how it can be avoided in any way. So this is likely going to happen at an increasing rate already in the next 10 years. So some really exciting changes and some tremendous opportunities that are currently out there for South Africa And this international investment into the just transition in South Africa is something that can also really help us to get investments going into the South African economy. Those investments the president has been looking for for so many years, they can actually be materialized through South Africa committing to modernizing its its economy through the just transition towards relying on the renewable
0: forms of energy and an electric transport system. We're going to take another station break, another important commercial message to our listeners, and we're speaking with Dr. Francois Engelbrecht, professor of climatology at the Global Change Institute of the University of the Witwatersrand, and we'll be back right after this message with some final thoughts on the north-south divide and the call for reparations and support for just transition. And I want to add, I want you to think about why China is still listed as part of the South, as many people have pointed out to me that they are now the world's second largest emitter of greenhouse gases. Um, So we'll be back after this message. Is your shopping list longer and your time shorter? DISCHEM delivered has you covered. From healthcare essentials to baby food, beauty, and toiletries, whatever you need, DISCHEM delivered has you covered. Download the easy-to-use Dischem app and shop over 7,000 products at in-store prices that will be delivered to you within 60 minutes. Now you can relax while Dischem delivers your essentials to you. It's that simple. Discem delivered from Discem to you. Dischem pharmacies. Pharmacists who care. This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And this is indeed the Deep Dive, and this is Brooke Spector, and we're delighted to be speaking with Dr. Francois Engelbrecht, Professor of Climatology glo- of the Global Change Institute of the University of the Midwatersrand, and we have covered an extraordinary range of topics and issues, but the one thing that I think we've not managed to address is, although you did uh, to some degree by talking about the grants to the uh, for the equitable transition that uh, the funds that are that have been pledged. The question that lingers in my mind is why China remains part of the southern countries when it has now, recently at least, become the world's second largest uh, emitter of greenhouse gases. Yes, so China is the world's second largest economy
1: and in fact, Brooks, the biggest emitter of greenhouse gases in the world. China today contributes in the order of 30%. Of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. The United States contributes more or less 15% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. So it's very clear that without these two superpowers taking strong climate change action in terms of reducing emissions, there's no way for the rest of the world having any chance of mm-hmm. reducing global warming to below 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius. So, around the very contentious issue of loss and damage, which was, of course, in the end, an area of a major breakthrough in this last round of United Nations climate change negotiations. Once again, the respective positions that China and the U.S. took made it very, very difficult for an agreement to be reached. So on the side of the United States, the United States have always been reluctant with the European Union to support such an agreement on loss and damage, which is effectively about... Which is effective which is effective which is effectively about making payment to the developing countries of the world when they suffer irreparable or irreversible losses and damage as a consequence of climate change and that includes the immediate impacts of devastating floods as we've seen in Pakistan for example mm-hmm. or long lasting droughts but also the long lasting and irreversible impact of sea level for example on the world's small island states so I think the United States, as I've understood their position over the years, they've never been keen to reach such an agreement. They don't want to be seen officially as a country that is causing damage to the developing countries of the world. They also don't want to be legally liable mm-hmm. to what's making these types of payments because Climate science tells us these types of events will only increase in terms of the frequency, in terms of the economic costs. Those costs can spiral out of control. There's always been an extremely tricky aspect of the climate change negotiations. But now we have reached a deal through which countries will make voluntary contributions to a loss and damage fund. And countries that have committed to making these voluntary contributions include the United States and also the European Union. Now, along the process towards reaching this agreement, the position that China took was also problematic because as it phrased its own version of this agreement, China itself would be seen as a developing country receiving payments rather than contributing to this fund. That was what I was agreeing to. Exactly, exactly. I think in the eventual agreement that was reached, China now also is in the position to make voluntary contributions to this fund exactly who will be receiving payments that remains unresolved so that will be a key aspect of the negotiations in the next year but many voices are going up and i think rightly so that strong economies such as china and strong growing economies such as india also need to make contributions to this loss and damage fund that is certainly true for china now being the second largest economy in the world and um, if they to take such a stance they can make a really positive contribution to making this loss and damage fund that now exists symbolically something that can really make a difference in the poorest countries of the
0: world over the next 10 to 20 years Dr Engelbrecht I'm sorry to to do this because I'm I'm enjoying this immensely and I have a whole page more of questions but we've run out of time and <laughs> we'll have, this will have to be parked and we'll come back to it at some point in the future and we'll revisit what we've, what we've learned today, and we'll pose all the other questions I have, and we'll talk to you again sometime. It's been a great pleasure to, and a privilege to talk to Dr. Francois Engelbrick, Professor of Climatology, the Global Change Institute at the University of the run, And listeners have been able to receive a, a cram course in paleobiology and climate change and environment and ecology and uh, recycling science. All in one hour. I appreciate your time very much. Thank you, sir. Pleasure to have you on to, on today's show. Thank you, Brooks. It was such a
1: pleasure and um, always so much to talk when it comes to weather and climate. Let's see what we all can do ourselves about it when we're back in our house.
0: Thanks again. We'll talk to you we'll talk to you again. This has been Brooks Spector and this was today's deep dive, and we'll be back again next week with another exploration of an important and consequential issue and topic uh, for our lives.